0: hello Quote, having behind us the commercial interests and the laboring interests and all the toiling masses we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold Unquote. the year is 1896 and at the democratic national convention William Jennings Bryan has just concluded what is now considered to be one of the most powerful political addresses in American history. His subject now seems almost comically dry, a championing of bimetallism, an underpinning of currency based on both gold and silver, over the gold standard policy of the sitting Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. Yet, from this single issue stemmed a wider social message, a message of support for the rural poor. Quote, I tell you that the great cities rest upon these broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in the country. At only 36 years of age, almost on the force of his fervent rhetoric alone, Bryan became the Democratic Party's presidential nominee. And in the election campaign which followed, against Republican William McKinley, one may glimpse the state of the American nation and its great social and economic divisions as it turns to enter the 20th century. With me to discuss the American election of 1896 are Noni Kuby, a third-year history default student of St Cross College and the Rothamere Institute, and Dan Rowe, a fourth-year history default student at Lincoln College and also of the Rothamere Institute. Thank you very much for joining me. Noni, perhaps we could start by getting a picture of what America is like at around the end of the 19th century. What's the population like? Are people in in towns or cities? What what are the main issues facing the country?
1: So America at this time, it's um, undergoing some big changes. It's um, industrialising, urbanising, and there's a lot of uh, immigration, mainly from Europe. There are a lot of people moving from the from rural areas into the cities, into not-so-nice neighbourhoods. And in 1896, the country is just three years after a big recession, a big panic, big crash? A big financial panic. Is a big probably... financial panic um, in 1893.
0: What's the cause of this panic?
1: Oh, so this was... Um, there was a a rush on gold held by the US government by mainly by European investors who were wanting to cash in their dollars um, following some crisis in Argentina
2: this creates panic within the within the markets and it creates a real problem for lots of americas big companies something like a quarter of americas railroad companies go bust in the following year it's really we can't. The, the, the figures themselves over bankruptcies and things and unemployment in the industries that Noni mentioned really swell. So it's a lot of economic turbulence at a time and during an era when, as we said, relatively speaking, America's prospered in the years since the American Civil War. It's grown at a rapid rate. I don't think we can overemphasise how rapidly it's grown by our modernised places like Chicago doubles in population in the eighteen in the 1870s uh nebraska which is william jennings bryan's state uh, doubles in population during the 1880s i think so it's hugely it, momentous by if we think if we thought about that in modern context that would be astonishing and it creates all kinds of problems
1: and it's also a a time when um america has just finished closing the frontier which means they have um, they have finished expanding across the continent. They've
0: joined up east and west. They have, right? yeah, yeah. So, just getting the picture um, in my head and for our listeners, that we have this period of great social change, but this shorter period since 1893, of economic turmoil. You uh, mentioned uh, to me earlier that certain groups recovered from the um, economic turmoil much quicker than others.
1: Yeah, so um, it, particularly it was farmers who were particularly hard hit, um, especially out in the West. A lot of um, farms were abandoned, where farmers couldn't pay their mortgages. Um, and when uh, there was significant deflation in the currency following the, the rush on on gold, and uh, farmers faced with lowering prices, they didn't have as much money, their mortgages weren't lowering in value, so they often had to leave their homes.
2: It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a double whammy in lots of ways there is the the weather is poor um, which means that the the harvest yields are poor as well in in 1896 and it also comes on the back of a long period of environmental problems in the agricultural region of America that there has been before things have gone poorly for big industries and corporations with the panic of 1893 there has been a period in the 1890s of poor harvests so so in some ways, the economic turbulence or turmoil, or whatever we want to call it, has been going on for much longer for farmers and for agricultural workers than it does for the rest of the nation. So this, the panic perhaps comes in the middle of this economic downturn for, for
0: farmers rather than at the start, yeah. as it does for, for everyone else. A lot seems to come down to this issue of the gold standard versus a free silver standard or a bimetallism thing. Could you, um, uh, Noni, perhaps in the first instance, explain these two economic positions that have been in confrontation with each other for a lot of the 19th century?
1: It's really difficult to understand how big of a deal this was because it's just so foreign to us. So the American currency, well, a lot of currencies, um, the American currency was um, based on gold. Lincoln, during the Civil War, had issued paper currency, greenbacks, but during Reconstruction, Republicans had been really um, keen to get this back to 100% uh, backed by gold. But this meant there's a period in the whole world where there was a contracting supply of gold. And so um, there was a a real shortage of money in America. Um, And this meant deflation, because there was... rapidly expanding period of um, growing wealth and growing concentration of wealth in certain classes. And that means there's like real demand for money, but at the same time there's contracting supply. So there's, um, there's deflation. This is, like I said, is really bad in the West. This is really bad for farmers and for, for some other people. What they want to happen is um, to increase monetary supply by um, using silver to back up some of the currency, bimetallism, silver and gold.
0: So the way you argue it to me now, it sounds like the completely sensible thing to do to, to move towards a dual gold and silver back currency. But what were the arguments on the proponents of gold that kept gold as the standard for so long? Gold Proponents of gold essentially argue that silver will be
2: highly inflationary, that yes, there are problems with monetary supply, but the problems with the monetary supply are born out of the Somewhat global economic turbulence. It should be said of the of the period, rather than a shortage necessarily a shortage of gold. That this is a temporary phenomenon and it will dissipate. If we issue silver, we'll create an inflationary spiral and destabilise our currency.
1: And no that's, one will want to do trade. with yeah, this, that's particularly the UK.
2: That's a that's a key thing that Europe, the big financiers in the UK which is a financial powerhouse, do not want silver. They want, globally, gold standard as the accepted consensus for
0: sound economic management amongst the economic elite. Well, that's really excellent. I feel we've got a good sense of where the country is in 1896, which is, of course, an election year. The sitting Democratic president, uh, Grover Cleveland, has already served two terms, so by convention is not up for re-election. The Republicans choose William McKinley. Dan, what sort of man was McKinley? What did he he stand for? Well, William McKinley has
2: been a congressman from Ohio for a number of a number of years and he's at the time he went to the Republican nomination, he's the sitting governor of of Ohio. Now, he's not generated much publicity as governor of Ohio at least on a national stage. But as congressman from Ohio, the most significant ma- measure he's backed is a massive increase in tariffs in 1890 as a measure essentially to reduce reduce unemployment. It's ramping up the tariffs on imported goods to raise the price of foreign-produced goods in the hope that Americans turn to domestic goods um, in the meantime. So that's his reputation. is. He's got a murky reputation on gold and silver. He's never come out strongly in favour of gold up until this point in time but one of his favoured means of solving economic
0: problems that he has a reputation for is ho- are high tariffs. So McKinley is chosen for the Republicans by, as I gather, a relatively straightforward process. There's not a huge amounts of confrontation in, in a convention. He's the, the, the natural candidate i See, I think the...
1: everyone uh, just doesn't remember what happened in the Republican convention because of what happened in the Democrat convention.
0: Well, you wetted our appetite <laughs> because, indeed, the Democratic convention is much more interesting and exciting. Do you want to begin to describe the issues the Democrats face in picking their candidates?
1: So the Democrats were um, a lot more divided over this issue of gold and silver. They had been losing votes to the populist party which was particularly pro-silver. Of oh, the Populist Party, is that a third party? active? Uh, yeah, yes, so this is a period where there were a lot of um, alternative parties, and the Populist Party was a, a big one. Cleveland had been a, a strong proponent of gold, um, and it was kind of assumed that the Democrats would just continue to be gold um, until the the Free Silver movement found its spokesman in uh, William Jennings Bryan. The 36-year-old he wasn't currently holding office he'd previously be a congressman briefly yeah, i think
2: he he'd been a congressman from nebraska during the 1890s yeah. and he'd tried to run and become senator for nebraska but he lost his bid to become senator which was you didn't there weren't direct election of senators in the 1890s to become a senator for your state you had to essentially get the backing of the power players within the state and William Jennings Bryan did not appeal to the power brokers within Nebraska and instead they chose a Republican as their senator. But yes, William Jennings Bryan had been a congressman and he'd managed to get a lot of attention speaking on the silver issue. He is one of the prominent advocates for
0: free silver and he has a reputation as such. What's his background, Dave? Was he... Come from a, a wealthy family or a poor family? How did he get into the politics in the first not, place?
2: Not particularly a, a wealthy family, a kind of middling family. He's actually initially raised in in Illinois. He makes a lot of his in later life after the eighteen ninety six election and uh, and even during this period, he makes a lot of pegging his masters in Nebraska. But he's raised and brought up in Illinois. He actually attends law school in Chicago. But he finds he finds his home in Nebraska. He starts practicing law in in a fairly prosperous town in in Nebraska, and so that's his background. Is he's he's from a family of Democrats. Um, His both his mother and father are committed Democrats, and Brian's always throughout college, uh, university, as we'd call it, and then law school. Brian's been a very passionate orator he's put a lot of work into studying the classic orators and that's really something he's excelled at is intellectually he's middling um during this period but he has excelled at performing as an orator and
1: he's a another thing that we've got to remember about brian is that he's a really devout christian revivalist um and he gives like um america a lot of really great oratory um, and problems but uh he's a really keen Christian.
0: So he speaks at political conventions as if from the pulpit.
2: Sure. sure.
0: That that same style. At the convention, he gives the speech that is known as the Cross of Gold speech, which I read a few quotes from in the introduction. Dan, how did he come to be giving such a big speech? It was the closing speech of the convention. Well, Brian has engineered to be
2: at the close of the, the convention. He wants to... He wants to have the last word, as it were. But there have been speeches from advocates of silver throughout the convention. There's a significant member of the Democratic Party who makes a very uninspiring speech um, in favour of silver at the start of the convention. So the Democratic Party has endorsed as its plank silver. It's, the power balance is such within the Democratic Party that it's known beforehand that the party will commit to an agenda of free silver. And so there's a whole bunch of speeches by prominent silver advocates. But as I said, Brian consciously engineers to be speaking last at the convention. Yes, there are uninspiring speeches for free silver that that ruin people's political careers. But Brian's inspiring speech in favour of silver really makes an outsider into a viable candidate for the
0: Democratic Party nomination. It was a very um physical performance that this final line about crucified on a cross of gold yes yeah. um well
2: it's a, it's one of the we know from reports just how moved and inspiring people in the audience find this speech and the great shame is in eighteen ninety six we don't have even an audio recording of the speech, but we know from reports the just the Theatricality with which he goes about it. He concludes the speech. He reads the the cross of gold line, and he literally sticks his hands in the air and makes a crucifix and holds holds the crucifix for four or five seconds, turning round on the spot, I believe. So it's oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very Trumpesque somehow when you <laughs> think of that image in your head, isn't it's, it? It's uh,
1: no coincidence that it's a, a crucifix. Um, it's a explicitly anti-Semitic movement it's um uh free silver advocates believed that it was the big jewish bankers who were holding the uh the country to ransom and literally reliving the crucifixion with america as christ i imagine
0: and is this at the time actually quite a popular oh it's it's, view? it's
1: yeah so it's um you see it a lot in like cartoons from this period like political cartoons of uh, characterised them. Um, Jewish bankers pinning Brian to a cross.
2: (laughs) End of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, this anti-Semitism is fairly rife, not just in America, uh, but in in Europe as well. It's a conspiracy mentality
0: fueling this this anti-Semitism in lots of ways. You made the comparison to Trump. Earlier on, perhaps we shall talk about what comparisons can and maybe cannot be be drawn with the current election cycle a bit later. Perhaps we should say that, unlike Trump, his poetic mastery is, to my ears, (laughs) astonishing. Just a bit from the beginning of the speech. I would be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentleman to whom you have listened if this were but a measuring of ability, but this is not a contest among persons. The humblest citizen in all the land, when clad in the armour of a righteous cause, is stronger than all the whole hosts of error that they can bring. I come to speak to you in defence of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. I mean, this um, Christian preaching that you, you were talking about before, did
1: Yeah, definitely. He's, uh, he's got away with words. You can't see it working on a clickbait sort of audience, can you?
0: You can't, no. Not one use of tremendous or beautiful words. No. <laughs> no, and it's very... <laughs> It's it's
2: also very difficult to pick. We can get across. We can get cross of gold. We can give it its speech's title, but sound bites require several sentences, um, and I think this is something you find frequently in political speeches, even up to in some ways p- the t- middle of the twentieth century. The sound bites. Are d- it's very difficult to get to a speech's message just through one sentence, um, and it's the, it's the same with Brian, but it. It flows and it it definitely works with the audiences that he's speaking to. He's
0: People come to hear Brian. People come to Brian's rallies. Brilliant. So, Brian is the nominee. How is he viewed at the start of his campaign in the country at large? People haven't heard of him before.
2: He's Yeah, he's not got that much of a... Of a national reputation beyond the Cross of Gold and the advocating for silver, um, of course, as you can imagine, he gets a lot of a lot of publicity in the newspapers there as a result of what goes on at the Democratic Convention and the Cross of Gold speech. The major new American newspapers are fairly uniformly against Brian. Um, the New York World, for example, uh, which is America's largest paper at this time, I believe, is very anti-Brian, but of course, by the same token, because they hate Brian, because Brian provides very good copy, they actually spend a lot of time covering Brian, but they're not covering Brian in a in a very flattering light. But yes, this is Brian's fame moment. This is Brian getting all the attention, and this very much fuels Brian's political career for the next 30 years. Um, Brian will be a national figure until he dies in 1925.
0: Noni, you mentioned to me before that Brian wasn't liked so much in the cities.
1: Yeah, so I think it originally starts with the whole deflationary, inflationary um, message of bimetallism. So if if you're for silver, you're for inflation. And that's just really not a good thing if you are a labouring man in the city, you don't want prices to go up. Um, And so the cities have a for right from the beginning, they have a negative view of Brian. But then McKinley and uh, his campaign manager, they uh, really get to work on fueling this fear of Brian. And
0: what sort of things do they do?
1: So they, they tie him to um, religious fundamentalism. They say he's an extremist. And they tie him to um, radical uh, radicalism. So he, they really tie him to um, the governor of Illinois, who... Pardoned the Haymarket bombers, who were notorious anarchists, who didn't actually do the bombing, but that <laughs> didn't matter. They were they were anarchists, and he, and Brian was tied to this, so he was seen as a a candidate of like chaos, and he would disrupt things, which is good if you're not happy with the status quo, but not so good if you uh, want things to carry on.
0: Because there are certain groups who are very much in favour of inflation.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So the farmers, in particular really uh well, not all farmers it should be said. Eastern farmers not so much. Western farmers, Western Midwestern farmers, southern farmers all very keen on inflation.
2: Because like they get more for their projects. Yeah. And I think yes, I think they're not necessarily keen on inflation per se, if they could explain to us what inflation was. But if somebody tells them that by pegging currency to both gold and silver they can get higher prices for their produce, then that's definitely something that they can support. That doesn't necessarily mean that they would support high prices for everything. Um,
1: And it means means that you're basically you pay less money for your land because your mortgage effectively decreases, which is a big deal for, for Western farmers. Not such a big deal if you're a prosperous farmer who has been sat on your land for centuries and don't need to pay off a mortgage.
0: But if you're a, a new prospective farmer yeah. out in the, in the new lands out yeah. west, yeah. I guess it makes a difference. You mentioned briefly McKinley's campaign manager, um, Hannah. Yeah. He seems to be quite an important figure in all this. He, he finds a new way to, to make money for his candidates.
1: Yeah, so Hannah's kind of credited with um, creating this modern campaign which is based on really big money. Um, So Hannah approaches a lot of the big businesses who are very concerned about um, how they trade internationally and they want a stable currency and he he tells them that um, Brian is going to destroy the economy, Brian loves anarchists, Brian is completely crazy basically and says you must fund us because we must stop Brian and he raises enormous amounts of money for McKinley. I think it's the equivalent today of about $85 million, which is just unheard of then.
2: It's a staggering amount that uh, Mark Hanna manages to raise by appealing to industrialists and uh, wealthy people. Hanna himself is a multi-millionaire. Hanna made his money um, in Cleveland as an industrialist and retires to politics at the age of 40. And then very (laughs) much he becomes McKinley's power broker, for want of, want of a better word, throughout he is McKinley's heavy and directing the campaign. But no, fundraising is extraordinarily successful, which I think gets back to something Noni touched on earlier, the just the the, the rampant fear amongst the pro-gold faction of America, of the dangers of silver and the dangers of Brian, um, and the effectiveness of this message. Hannah also commissions, commissions. he puts together a speakers bureau that tours the country making stump speeches effectively in favour of McKinley. McKinley stays in his Ohio home and
0: receives delegations and makes speeches. I was going to talk about this, it seemed entirely totally extraordinary that lots of this money went on kind of bussing people in.
1: But it wasn't to... extraordinary at the time, so that's the thing, right? That you, yeah. you bus people, rather, it's more, it's Brian that does the extraordinary thing of a... Travelling the country, like, for us now, that's totally normal. Of course you can go and see some prospective voters, but he—it it is Brian who has to do this because he doesn't have the funds and he doesn't have the ability to get people to come to him. And so he does an amazing whistle-stop tour of the nation. I think he gives, like, five speeches in one day in Detroit.
2: And, uh... Yeah, he travels something like, during the course of the campaign, he travels something like 16,000 miles on the standard class of trains... And thinks he makes speeches from the back of trains. He makes a huge amount of speeches. He eats something like six meals a day to keep him going. Um, despite being a teetotaler, he rubs himself down with alcohol um, <laughs> to to wake him up, which means he arrives and gives his speeches reeking of gin. Um, but he's a, a
0: devout teetotaler, so uh, you know by all accounts, just an extremely magnetic man. Yeah,
1: yeah, he, certainly.
0: Yes, he's he's got the charisma
2: and the, the force of personality he gets to where he is because of this public persona and this, hu- this huge amount of charisma that he's
1: got he, while speaking. He becomes a celebrity, basically.
0: Where does he focus his campaign? Does he go all over or does he focus on swing states? So I guess we...
1: They both focus on the Midwest. Um, that's, so America at this time is still recovering from the Civil War um, and it's very sectional so the north and the Northeast still votes very republican, the South still votes very um very democrat, although this election does slightly change that um and so the midwest and the west that's where the that's where it's going to be up for grabs and Brian feels like he's got the west pretty pretty covered, and so they both focus on the, on
2: the yeah population. they they focus heavily on the on the states bordering and the, the border great lakes, lakes um as Noli said the region that we we think of as the Midwest, those are the places that they spend a lot of time and effort trying to win the votes of
0: those constituencies. OK, so we've cunningly kept the listener in suspense until now about who actually won the uh, the election of 1896, but we shall do so uh, no longer. No need. what was the
1: result? So poor Brian, after his miles and miles of travelling, he, he fails to get the presidency, McKinley... It's a landslide in terms of the electoral vote, electoral college, but in terms of the popular vote, it's pretty close.
0: Perhaps we should just do a quick recap about this electoral college votes versus the popular vote. So electoral college votes are assigned per every state.
1: Yeah, so the states have the same number of votes in the electoral college as they have... As they're represented in in Congress. Yeah. Um, And so... uh,
2: So each state initially has two... Two electoral college votes plus, however, many representatives they have in the in the house,
1: and so um, voters are voting for an electoral college representative who is pledged to vote for either McKinley or Bryan or one of the other candidates. Of which there are a few, though no one remembers them.
0: So this is a way in which the popular vote can be quite close, but the the overall electoral yep. college vote can be. Yeah. Yes, in fact, it's it's easy, well,
2: not easy, it's not unheard of in America to lose the popular vote but win the election. Um,
0: George W. Bush famously did it in 2000. These third parties that uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we talked about earlier, the the populist parties say, so we said that in 1895 they were a rather big deal, so how have they gone away?
1: So they've kind of been um, absorbed by the Democrats because of Bryan, they are um, really, really powerful as a third party coming up to this election. Um, they had, in the previous election, they'd got, I think, four or five states. Um, a, a number of states, anyway. And um, they decide that they've, they've really become um, a single-issue party, which not, many, not all populists are happy about, but they've really come behind this free silver idea. That's their main idea now. And so when Brian becomes a free silver Democrat... They um, do a very strange manoeuvre of they also nominate Brian. Brian becomes their nominee, but they select a, they nominate a different vice presidential candidate, and it's never quite clear who who Brian will pick, whether he'll pick his Democrat candidate or his populist candidate, if he does become president.
0: And so, this strange manoeuvre results in the populist party essentially being wiped out, is this?
1: Oh well, absorbed. <laughs> absorbed. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think this is. In some ways, the the swan song of the the People's Party, uh, which we call the the Populist Party, it grew out of various farmers' uh, parties that existed before it, and it endorses Brian, and it loses some of its independent power, let's say, as a third-party force because of its endorsement of Brian. And uh, as Noni says, in some ways... That's not just because of this manoeuvre, it's because the Democrats very much begin to absorb its agenda.
1: And also, silver becomes less of an issue after this. Um, The world finds more gold. American economics gets more uh, back on track.
0: Following his victory, McKinley does quite a good job at stabilising the country, would you? Yeah. Or or at least perceived to be. Yes, perceived, as as much as any... (laughs) Yes,
2: we can debate how much presidents can actually influence the course of economic development. Yeah,
1: and, uh, we can also talk about for which sections of society McKinley's yeah. <laughs> compromises are less good for.
2: But definitely by 1898, yeah. um, basic, the things that we describe as basic economic indicators are doing rather nicely. There is not the same rampant unemployment... There is not the same panic um, amongst agrarian populations and these kind of things. The the recovery happens between 1896 and 1898, this long awaited recovery from the panic of 1893.
0: And what's happened to the gold loving Democrats? Where did they they go after Brian took over? So the Democrats,
2: the split, um, much. Much like people have prophesised or tried to prophesise that Republicans <laughs> might in this election, if uh, if Donald Trump won the nomination, that didn't turn out true. But the Democrats do splinter. Gold Democrats form their own temporary party um, and National rally. Democrat Party. Yes, yes, they form their own National Democrat Party and they rally around this issue because, as I said before, people Gold advocates feel so strongly about the issue. Um, that they, they're unwilling to support
0: a nominee who is so staunchly pro-silver. It's time to ask what you'll probably tell me is an incredibly naive question. No, no humour me. Um, why did McKinley win?
1: Um, I think, in general, McKinley won because of gold, because we, we were discussing this earlier. Silver was incredibly popular among certain sectors of society, But gold was incredibly popular among the rest of society. And it was so polarising that when Brian stood up for for silver, he was incredibly popular among populists, among silver Democrats. But gold Democrats and Republicans were never going to swing his way. And so um, McKinley championing gold and saying how, pushing this rhetoric that Brian was dangerous and all of these things that Pro gold Americans feared. Yeah, he was always going to win.
2: I think. Yeah, and I mean, in some ways, one could argue not that it's a landslide defeat, but that it's actually remarkable how well Brian did, given the issues that he's supporting and the narrow, the narrow constituencies which support his his issues. He's also part of the party that is associated with the economic panic of 1893. It's the Democratic Party that has been in office during the panic. Um, and so all of these things. Brian, as I said, he does in some ways remarkably well at winning constituencies that in some ways you, that shouldn't be voting for him.
1: Then I guess there's McKinley as well as he manages to turn some southern counties red uh, he manages to turn solidly um confederate counties to vote republican which is incredible and he he does this mainly by showing that uh, brian is a radical conservative southern whites are are um really scared of that but McKinley also does this by compromising with southern whites and this is a real turning point this era in in uh reconciliation between the North and the South. So McKinley is the last Civil War veteran. He was a Union veteran, but he doesn't do what's called waving the bloody shirt. He doesn't say, you must vote for me as a Unionist in the North because of look what the Democrats did to us. Instead, when he goes to speak in Georgia, he wears a grey, a Confederate pin, and he um, and he never speaks out against lynching, and he doesn't speak out at all against um, African-American voter disenfranchisement. He compromises
2: Yes, it doesn't. Race is clearly a huge issue at this time, but actually, race is very conspicuously absent from the campaigns themselves. There's just been a major Supreme Court decision in 1896, which has effectively legalized segregation, and it's it's an issue that the that the two candidates avoid engaging with. Because, as Noni said, I think Noni's analysis is spot on that. Political calculations um, on McKinley's part cause him not
0: to make race an issue in the election. And so under his um, premiership uh, going forward, do some of the, the social problems in some cities and in northern cities, do they continue to, to fester so or does the general is... economic improvement also improve these situations?
1: This is the um, the start of what's known as the nadir of... Uh, african american and white relations um it's it 's a period where there's complete in some areas voter disenfranchisement um, in North Carolina at this point there are zero African Americans registered to vote um in the next eight years after McKinley is elected and when he's elected again, even though he doesn 't serve that term, there are at least eight hundred lynchings um, This is the worst period for race relations really um so no, things are <laughs> given. And it's partly it's partly to do with decisions that people like McKinley made, that they they chose to they chose to compromise and to heal sectional divisions over race relations.
2: But also the rural urban dynamic and the tensions between the two really don't go away. Um, they intensify quite dramatically. Brian even more becomes associated with the agrarian population and with Christianity in the years going forward he very much becomes the spokesperson for these constituencies and in 1925 he ends up speaking in a in shorter creationism trial Um, and there he's kind of character as this backwards poor-mannered American—that's a representative of a past America. This kind of agrarian vision, and that actually he's trying to trying to stop the march of modernity. So that's along with the racial divisions widening. The the kind of rural-urban divisions continue to widen.
0: We have three minutes left, <laughs> and it's the thorniest issue of all. But I should ask the question at least. No need. Are there any comparisons, useful or otherwise, that perhaps can be made between the McKinley-Bryan election and the current American election we find ourselves observing?
1: As a historian, I find myself very difficult to say, oh yeah, no, this is how they're similar. But there are loads of similarities. (laughs) There's so many. Um, Dan, you were saying earlier about the divides between that this causes in the Democrat Party. I think that's one of the big ones in in the republic um, in the Republican Party now. We we thought that the Republican Party is going to splinter, and it still might. It still might. And then there's also the whole, the massive difference between the machine for um, Clinton or the machine for McKinley compared to the the lack of organization comparatively that Trump had. So Brian didn't have the campaign strategy. The, didn't have the staff behind him that, that mckinley had and trump is doing all of his own talks whereas clinton has obama he she has um michelle Obama she has um joe biden al gore she has just, it's such an incredible list of people who speak for her whereas trump is doing it all himself and even mike pence has started dropping out of speaking for him
2: yeah yeah i think i think those of them are the most significant comparisons the the political i mean what's going on within the parties and the way that the political campaigns are operating i think it's it's tempting to look at some of the rhetoric the rhetoric of the populists uh the brian's rhetoric and these attacks against the economic elite and this this conspiracy mentality in a way because that's what it is in lots of ways that's what's causing this resentment of the of the gold standard is this this idea that uh, Americans and farmers are being played by this Eastern economic elite. It's tempting, it's tempting to see some of that in both Trump and Bernie Sanders' campaign, but I think, as we brought out, the problem with that comparison is often what's behind this, the thinly veiled xenophobia and racism Is very different from what we see in the 21st century. We might say that that's to a certain extent that's underlying Trump's campaign, but it's definitely Bernie Sanders is not waging anti-Semitic attacks. There is uh, no question that um, of that. So as I said, we should maintain caution with comparisons and
0: similar, but but different in lots of ways. Well, thank you very much both of you. It's been an education for me. Join us next time on In Our Spare Time.